You know, as I prepared for today, as we're entering into Esther, we're going to kind of move through more and more chapters each week into bigger swaths, because when you preach the Old Testament, you're walking through a story, and you kind of want to go with the flow of the story. And so I'd encourage you once again to read through the book on your own, because I'll be summarizing some of it and digging into some specific verses as well. But um, up here I have a Nick Walinda, the famous Walinda family that worked in the circus. And, and he recently did a tightrope walk on that's a very live volcano. And uh, he likes to do these things without, you know, harnesses. Uh, that makes it more exciting. And uh, I think it was his great-grandfather or grandfather who died on live TV uh, doing a tightrope walk. And, uh, I thought of this because I thought, you know, this is kind of feels like some of the either pastoring or leading or trying to walk through the season of life. There's so much going on and things that are trying to pull you to the right or to the left and, uh, and trying to get you off balance. And sometimes it feels like you're on the tightrope when you talk about tough subjects. We're trying to figure out what's going on in our culture in this moment in history. And I think it also can be a tightrope when you walk through the Old Testament. It can be tempting to take these stories and just transpose them onto our culture immediately without doing the hard work of saying, what is God teaching us specifically in this passage? And then looking at our context here today. And so, in our series, Faith Through the Fog, we're discovering that while God is not explicitly mentioned in the book of Esther, we see he is at work. And we talked last week about the idea that God is in control of everything and that he is working through what we call providence. That means he directs, alongside our choices, everything to go towards his purposes, his glory, and ultimately for the good of those who call Jesus Christ their Savior. And so, uh, as we've looked at this, we've come face to face with evil and sins and problems that were the same back then as they are now. It shows you quite a bit about the human heart. And so, uh, as we look at this today, we're going to be introducing you to some more tension. Last week we had quite a bit of tension, and that tension was filled with the idea of these women being ripped from their homes and taken and paraded before the king. And then he only selected one, and the rest went off to a harem. Some never to be called again, never allowed to marry. So we had to look that ugliness straight in the eye last week. And this week, we're going to see the ugliness of racial tension that boils up. And I want to do so as we look at chapter 3. I want to introduce you to this man named Haman. We're going to be introduced to Haman, and Haman's uh, an ambitious guy. And he just got his big break, his promotion in this kingdom of King Ahasuerus. And he was pretty proud of himself. And because of his promotion, people now had to bow to him. Or at least that's what he wanted them to do. And so uh, this aspiring leader is going to come in and we're going to find that he's a man that has a lot of pride and enjoys and abuses his power. And uh, I think it's a little bit of humor that you're going to find a little later on in Esther uh, how this pride comes back to get it. Uh, it's, it's actually uh, pretty interesting how his life turns out. As we start here, I want to read you directly from Esther chapter 3. So after these things, after Esther was selected queen, uh, 
King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agag, and the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him uh, to and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were, who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he wouldn't listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words uh, would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made it known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, and to destroy them out of the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And so, once again, we have this weird situation. We're not told exactly why Mordecai chose not to bow if there's some overarching principle. Uh, we're, we're not given a direction to whether this was the right thing that everybody should be doing or just something he did. Uh, we're not told uh, everything about what's going on with Haman's hatred that is unleashed here. But if we look in the text, you're going to find we actually have some clues here today. Uh, some clues that be begin to give us a picture of what's going on. You see, the text tells us that uh, Haman is an addict. And it reveals, as we knew earlier, that Mordecai is... A Jew. But, uh, earlier we found out that Mordecai is not only a Jew, he's a Benjamite, which is the descendant of King Saul. Well, as it turns out, about a thousand years earlier, the Israelites were directed, Saul was directed, to go in and battle the Amalekites and totally destroy them and wipe them out. But King Saul disobeyed the Lord and he stopped short of doing that, taking plunder and leaving uh, people alive that he was not supposed to, including. Again, the relative of Haman, who was eventually killed by Samuel. And so we have this uh, deep-seated animosity, this history between these two people groups that comes here. And so I believe that we have, it is highly likely that because of his lineage, Haman carried a deep hostility towards the Jews who were in exile across the kingdom. And as we're going to see, it wasn't just him who carried this. And then we see Mordecai, that Mordecai may have also had something against Haman's people, which made him not want to bow down or follow the king's orders. But we're not told exactly why he didn't do that, but apparently he explained it's because he is a Jew. And so what we have here is this moment of not bowing down, but it explodes. It goes from between two people, Haman and Mordecai, and Haman decides, I'm going to take them all out. I'm not satisfied with this hurting him. And this is what I would define as a flashpoint. Now, a flashpoint is an incident that reveals hostilities that have been boiling below the surface. I can see your minds working to see it. When we have these incidents caught on video camera on phones, and the incident itself is pretty bad, but it becomes a flashpoint from time to time in our history as a country, 
and all of a sudden, protest and anger, and it is rising up on every side. And the reality, there was something going on below the surface the whole time. And the incident just exposed it. And that's what happened here. This incident exposes the hearts, not only of Haman, but of the people of this kingdom who despised the Jewish people who remained after the exile. And so as, as we look at this and we walk through this, Haman then approaches the king. He goes to the king, and as we look in here, he begins to uh, paint this picture in uh, verses 7 through the end of the chapter. And, and what he does is, in verse 8, he says, There's a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples, and the law, their laws are different, and they don't keep the king's laws. So what is he doing here? He's making generalities and assumptions about a large group of people. That's often how racism looks. We, we lump a group of people into this large category and make generalities and assumptions about who they are, what they do, not addressing the individuals at all, but using that to put them down. And in this case, he used it. And this king, as we've seen, he's pretty wishy-washy. He convinced him to put out an edict. And this edict is pretty bad. And if you look at it, in verse 13, it reads this. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's prophets with the instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder all their goods. Then he promised the king some taxes and benefit from that plunder for the king's personal treasure. What did he ask for here? He asked for genocide. Genocide is the killing of a large group of people based on race or ethnicity or nationality. And then he set the calendar date way out in the future. How terrible is this? Now certainly, I feel that Mordecai here must have felt pretty bad when he heard this. His one action has led to this. And so he is just distraught. He enters the streets lamenting, wailing, and crying, tearing his clothes, which was a symbolism of deep mourning at the time, wearing sackcloth and weeping in all the public square. And then upon hearing this decree, Jews across the land, the people began to mourn and weep and cry. Imagine that. They didn't just say, go and do it. They set a date on the calendar that was going to be set for them to be killed. Well, Mordecai is in the streets, and Esther's servants know that she's the one who raised him and cared for him. They've been communicating, as we saw earlier, and so she sends a message to him and says, what are you doing? You're going to be punished. You need to quit drawing attention to yourself. You see, she was the queen. She lived in the palace. She was oblivious to what the king had done. She didn't realize it. Until Haman sends a message back to her and says, listen, this is what the king has done. Or Mordecai sent that message. And Mordecai begins to think for a moment and says, maybe our only hope is that you've been put in this position. Esther, not much unlike any of us, says, listen, the king hasn't even called on me for 30 days. I don't even know if I'm in favor. Do you remember what happened to Vashti who refused to come? Well, if you step into the king's presence and he didn't invite you, you could be killed on the spot. 
she could be sent away to the harem and to find a new queen. She said, this is too risky. And then what happens? Well, at the end of chapter 4, we see the famous section here. Uh, and it says this, starting in verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said about her fear. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And here, as we look at this, Esther then told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so, in the midst of this, we find ourselves back on that tightrope. Uh, we find ourselves in that spot where she doesn't know what to do. It doesn't seem that there's any way out. But she finally and bravely says, I'm going to step into this tension that is bubbling here. You see, the reality is that what we're seeing here is new. Racial tensions aren't new, and what we're seeing in our culture is not new. And yet, it's this feeling that we have as human beings that each of us has within us because of that sin nature that somehow we want to make ourselves superior than others, put ourselves ahead of other people, seek our own comfort. And the temptation, I think, this morning is to believe and to fall into our trapping today that there are only two sides, only two paths you can take when we face this. And I want to encourage us this morning and we don't ever want to take the path of Haman of generalizing assumptions. I'd rather believe in the sovereignty of God, as Mordecai said. You know what? If someone doesn't, if you don't respond, God's going to raise up someone to respond. Followers of Jesus, I think we need to reorient ourselves. And we need to reorient ourselves to the third way. And the third way looks at the world from God's perspective. We step back from the situation, dig into God's Word, and we understand the world in a different way than anyone else because of the Gospel. We're able to take a different view. And if you look back and you look at this picture here, this tightrope walker, what does he have here? He's got this long pole, and this pole is used, as they say, they hold it for balance. Did you know that those ropes I was listening to an interview with him recently, and the, the rope actually can move as much as two feet as he's walking on it. You think it's stable, but it's not. And if the wind picks up, it can be moved and just slightly go up and down. And so you have to be able to focus. And without that pole, the wind would, he'd have no way of counterbalancing. I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that pole for us as we walk through this life and have all this tension. That keeps us balanced and focused on the way of the gospel is the gospel. That pole is God's word, his story. 
He's given us everything we need to know to walk through and to handle these situations. And, and as we look at this story from the third way, from God's perspective, I want to identify some guideposts, some poles, some things that can, you can hold on to for balance. So that not only do you just stand there, the goal of a tightrope is to get across. Once you start, you're not going to turn around. You've got to keep moving forward. And as God's people, we need to keep moving forward, following his path and his plan and trusting him in these situations. And so, uh, despite our world's best effort uh, to deal with this issue of racism, what well, we've said, legislation, we've tried education, and it still comes up. And it comes up across the world. We're not the only nation that deals with this. Even within nations in Africa, different tribes battle one another. Different people fight one another. It's a deep issue. And every generation must fight against it. And, and so as we look at this, um, we come to our understanding of it. And we come to this understanding that the gospel story of brokenness and reconciliation gives us the best way to look at this. Rabbi Zacharias says, I come from a land where there are equally such prejudices. Those from North India tend to have hot, hot, lighter complexions than and different habits from those in South India. I came from South India, and I remember being raised in the North. On more than one occasion, I remember being derided because I was from the South. And I was called words that don't belong in such an article as this, he says. And he says, here's the root of it all. Right from the beginning of creation, hate and segregation came into the very first family. One brother hating another brother. Why? Because he seemed to be more sensitive to God. Imagine that you and I see hate and eviction, hate and eviction come not just because of race. They can come because of race of place, or of your face. He says, racism isn't white versus black. We make a cardinal mistake putting two colors against one another. He says, go to Asia and you'll see the regional hate discrimination. Go around the world and you'll see religious hate and discrimination. Social and economic hate and discrimination. It's ultimately the passion that seeks to bring down somebody else and justifies it out of self-superiority. You see, we have a, a reason for this, and, and we can go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Right after Adam and Eve chose to sin, they were tempted by the devil who took on the form of a serpent. And God, in speaking to the serpent, the serpent said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and her offspring, and between your offspring and her offspring. And so Satan is battling against us. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now some versions say, he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heels. And so what he's saying there, what he's talking about is that Satan is going to strike at our heel. He's going to cause pain in this world. But ultimately, God will have the victory and crush and defeat Satan. And we feel the sting of Satan because he continues to stir up strife among us. What does it say of him? He is like a lion whose desire is to kill, steal, and destroy all he can on this world. But why wouldn't he want us to think differently about one another? 
And so as we walk through this and we talk about uh, these, these guideposts, we have this story of brokenness and reconciliation. Brokenness because of sin, because of Satan entering the world, but reconciliation through the cross of Jesus Christ. We are enemies of God because of our sin. He's holy and perfect, and the only way back to him is reconciliation through Jesus Christ, dying on the cross and rising again on the third day. It is this message of reconciliation that the world needs most right now. It's not one unique message that we carry and the opportunity that we have to make a difference in the world. And so, our next guidepost is this idea then of gospel humility. You see, the first thing that happens is when we come to the foot of the cross and realize that we are all sinners in need of the Savior, then we have indeed the opportunity to come before the Lord and fall at the foot of the cross, realizing we need Jesus. It's the great leveler of every human being ever is the foot of Calvary, because we're equally in need of the Savior. I cannot look at anybody when I lift a foot of the cross and say, I'm better than you. Furthermore, the Gospel tells us that Christ died for us because he loves us because we bear the image of God. The world tries to define human value, but it ultimately comes from the fact that each and every one of us is made in the image of God. And because we're image bearers of God, we have value and worth. You have value and worth. Someone who looks different than you has value and worth. Someone from a different country has value and worth because they're made in the image of God. We are image bearers. And we are all equally in need of Christ. And so in the midst of this horrid decree of genocide, the people stop and they lament. And they cry out to God. And we, we, in humility, need to step back, look, and understand the whole picture of the world, and understand Satan's work in the world, and we need to stop and cry out to God humbly. Before we pick a side or an opinion, we need to just be mournful of what's going on, deaths of people, of people trying to protect us, living in fear that they may be attacked, and the confusion on every side in our country, we need to lament. The world needs to see a humble and broken people moved by the tragedies around us. Not clicking any sin on a post or like or jumping to one side or another, but taking the third way. It says people matter to God. And so you see God works his way providentially in this world. He's chosen uh, people to demonstrate his power and authority. Now, God could have just ended this situation like that, and he chose to work through people. And he chose to work through imperfect people. People who have made moral compromises. You know, that there's only been one perfect person God ever used in accomplishing his will, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. For the rest of his agenda, God uses imperfect people. He uses our daily, ordinary obedience to accomplish his extraordinary plan. And he's at work in our stories, placing us in the right place at the right time, with the right gifts, with your unique DNA, to make a difference for his kingdom. And so what we see here is that Esther comes 
to a point of opportunity. Gospel opportunity is what we have because we live in the age of the gospel. I love how Mordecai points it out to her. He's like, listen, I believe God is going to save his people. You have the opportunity to act. You're not going to avoid the dirtiness and messiness of this sin. You're not going to be able to hide forever. But you do have an opportunity to make a difference because where God has placed you for such a time as this. You see, you look at Haman and he uses his power and influence and opportunity for evil and destruction. But on the opposite side, we have Esther who has the opportunity to try and attempt at least to change the path, this future date set for this forward activity. You see, gospel opportunities come. And even in the face of absolute evil, even though God is unseen and his name is mentioned, he is at work. And Haman begins, or Mordecai begins, I think, to begin to understand and look at, you know what? It's amazing that you were selected queen. Maybe you're in that spot for a reason. Maybe God was at work all along in the midst of this tragedy, and he's going to turn it into a triumph. You see, the truth of the matter is, one person can make a difference. One person can impact the kingdom. One can, person can be used to change a life. Every moment of our day, every view we have, every position we take should be penetrated by the gospel. If we are a people who are humbled by the gospel, by the love of Christ, it should control everything we do. And that results in small little steps of obedience every week. But then there are times that come when you have the opportunity to make a bigger difference. You might be put in a position to be the one who makes the stand, to be the one who reaches out, to be the one who encourages a police officer, to be the one who understands somebody who's different from them, just listens and shows them love. You see, that's why we started in my church, is this belief that it's not about programs or buildings or bucks or bottoms and chairs. It's about you all being disciple makers and making a difference. And that's why we created this idea of a base camp to train you up that wherever you're at in life, God wants to use you. And to show you that you can make disciples as you go on about your day. You can do it one-on-one, two-on-two. But you've got to take ownership and be intentional with your lives. And what's encouraging to me is I see you all doing that from our youngest up front to our oldest, looking for opportunities to pray for somebody, to reach out to a neighbor, to encourage someone, invite them into a Bible study. That is what God has called us here to do. And so as we join in mourning over these flashpoints and we walk in humility, we have the opportunity to make a difference. You think back through history, there are people who had the opportunity to make a difference. And uh, I'm reading a book right now, uh, a historical book by an African-American preacher. And, and he looks at the entire history of the African-American people from slavery on forward to today. And his number one premise is, we will never find the freedom that everybody fights for if we don't combine with the gospel. We can try everything we want with the people, but without the gospel, we won't find the freedom God has for us. 
And he compared, he said, I, I think of a man like Martin Luther King, who sat in a meeting and got nominated for that position of leadership, and he had to make a choice in that moment, and he stepped into it. And he began to preach the gospel and to share the impact, the, the fate of our country. And so as we look at this, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that even as a church, we're here for such a time as this. God is not absent. You know, as a young church, the number one thing you want is people who are excited about the mission and vision and reaching out to people. And then you, in this town, you need enough financial backing to sustain ministry and gain a footing in the community. This could easily be a time where we panic. And yet God is at work providing in ways we never could have predicted. Did you know that over $13,000 has been given in the name of Pastor Tom Bowes? That covers our difference for 18 months of anything that we've lost during this period of COVID. And then don't tell me God doesn't see us, that he's not at work, and that he doesn't have opportunities for us and people that need to be reached through even being in our lives. He is at work. And yet, in the midst of this gospel opportunity, Esther doesn't just go and bust in on the king and say, hey, come spend the night with me, let's have a banquet, let's be together. No. She looks for guidance. And although God hasn't mentioned explicitly, this is probably the most explicit part of the entire book, because we understand that for the Jewish people to fast is to seek the Lord. And she calls her people to fast, to go hard after Yahweh, after the one true God. They return to their faith. And they return to him in this gospel guidance. And fasting fuels our faith. It's a practice that we don't do too often these days. Fasting before the Lord, going to him out of desperation. And, and it's hard for us not to, to look at this. And we walk into this and fasting is designed, you see, to help our hearts reconnect with our Savior. To reconnect with His mission. It's an act of repentance, humility, grace, and total reliance on God's promises. In a time of crisis, we need to be more concerned with confessing our fear and our feelings than with concealing our faith. And so when we think about the last time we fasted or prayed, were you seeking the Lord's direction, or were you looking and praying for an opportunity for God to use you for the gospel? See, one of the reasons we don't do this is because fasting is a relinquishing of our own control over what we eat, what we're comfortable with, and, and really, if we're truly seeking God, we're saying, whatever you have for me, show me, and I'll step into that. That's how Esther came to that point of saying, if I perish, I perish. But I want to step in and follow you, Lord, even though I can't see the results. In, in a book on uh, spiritual disciplines, the author says, the Bible doesn't teach that fasting is a kind of spiritual hunger strike that compels God to do our bidding. If we ask for something outside of God's will, fasting doesn't cause God to reconsider. Fasting does not change God's hearing, so much as it changes our praying and our hearts. And then it isn't it interesting that this fasting in the midst of this book of Esther is in contrast to feast after feast after feast, and right after this she's going to throw two more feasts. 
When God's people are desperate, they don't feast, they fast. And they focus, a fast focuses our hearts on our true home, which is heaven. And remind us that everything here is temporary. And the souls of the people that believe differently than us, that are battling us in culture, trying to tear down what we believe in, ultimately have an eternal destination. And before we can convince them of our point of view, our hearts need to be broken for their reality for eternity. Thomas Watson says, God is to be trusted when his providences seem to run contrary to his promises. People who hope to be used by God must boldly put themselves in a position where God can work through them, rather than sitting back and doing nothing, passively hoping or waiting. So often we can say, man, Sure could use somebody in that school to speak up for the Lord. Man, my friend, they need to have somebody really share the gospel with them. Or man, you drive by somebody in need, somebody should really help that person out. I hope they do. I wonder if you ever think to yourself, somebody ought to, or I wish somebody would, and maybe you're the one who should step up. You see, there comes a time when the content of the gospel needs to be shared because it is only the gospel that truly reconciles people. There comes a time where we don't just sit back and hope. We have to stand up and share our hope. We have to be willing, like Esther, to step out in courage and to trust in the Lord for guidance and control. So I'd encourage you, lament. Let your heart break over what we're seeing. The only way to do that is to return to that hole that gives you balance and remember the big picture. Know that our battle is always against flesh and blood. Remember that we're equal image bearers of God and we equally need the cross. And out of that brokenness, start to look for opportunities. Start to fast. Add that into your plan in life. Figure out when to do a half day or one meal, but then replace that time is seeking after the Lord earnestly. If we do that, not only as individuals and as a church, then we have the opportunity to align ourselves with God's plan. And there's no better path to be on than that. And it's a way that the world will look at and say, it's not right, it's not left, it's not in the middle. It's totally otherworldly. I want that. Now I want that for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, through your providence and your plan, oh, yeah. yeah, it's it was bad. Well, Mom's like, oh, it fixed itself, and then she's like, oh, never mind. These were these some were just worse than others. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good to know. Are yours, Naomi? Oh yes, thank you. Oh, there you go. Yeah, now you need some hearing. Oh no, I found it. Oh, I think. Yeah. Okay. Awake. 